Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Wendy Johnson and John Evans titled Gardening at the Dragon's Gate, Engaged Dharma and Ecology for Challenging Times. So welcome to everybody. I am Kira Epstein, the program coordinator for the new school at Commonweal. And today I am so pleased to have John Evans and Wendy Johnson with us for a conversation today about engaged dharma and ecology. The conversation is co-presented with the Mesa Refuge, and both John and Wendy are alums of the Mesa Refuge's writing residency program. So thank you to Mesa Refuge Executive Director Susan Page Tillett, who is with us today on the webinar. We're recording this conversation and we'll have it produced uh, in audio and video files, and we'll post those on our website, on SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Ken Adams is behind the scenes, as always, helping us with this production, so thank you, Ken. Finally, we have a couple other conversations coming up in November and December. We have a conversation with David Steinhardt and our host, Steve Heilig, about closing California's youth prison system. This is a project that David has been working on in his juvenile justice program at Commonweal for decades, and this is a big win for him and for the, the juvenile youth system in California. December 4th, we have a conversation again with Steve Heilig and Frank Ostaseski. This is in our end-of-life conversation series, and we hope you can join us for that. And if you're listening later, you can always find information about all of our podcasts and events on tns.commonweal.org. Now let me say a few words about John and Wendy, and then we will get started. First, I consider John to be a friend, a co-collaborator, and a mentor. She's a writer. She's the executive director of Tamil Pius Trust, uh, which supports indigenous peoples saving sacred lands and waters. She's a Zen priest and a teacher with the Everyday Zen and Heart of Compassion Sangha in Point Reyes Station. And she's a Mesa Refuge advisor and former board member. And now she's also a Commonweal board member, and she's a passionate participant in Commonweal's Healing Circles Global Program. Wendy is a Buddhist meditation teacher and an organic gardening mentor who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. She began practicing Zen Buddhist meditation in 1971 and has led meditation retreats nationwide since 1992 as an ordained lay Dharma teacher in the traditions of Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh and the San Francisco Zen Center. As one of the founders of the organic far farming program at Green Gulch Farm Zen Center, Wendy's been teaching organic agriculture and meditation for decades. Since its inception in 1995, she has been a mentor and advisor to Edible Schoolyard Program, a project affiliated with Chez Panisse Restaurant. Yum! She served as a founding instructor of the College of Marin's Innovative Organic Farm and Gardening Project established in 2009, where she taught organic agriculture for the first seven seasons of the program. In 2000, Wendy and her husband, Peter Rudnick, received the annual Sustainable Agriculture Award from the National Ecological Farming Association. She is the author of Gardening at the Dragon's Gate, published by Bantam in 2008. There it is. 
John and Wendy, we are so pleased to have you with us today. Welcome to the New School at Commonweal. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Timothy, um, we, are, we are indebted to you for making this happen. And also thanks to Commonweal for all of the uh, connectivity and uh, healing work that uh, they have done for so many years. And special thanks to Michael Lerner and to Oren Slosberg, Arlene, Jennifer, and Van. Those are our, our beloved people who make this all happen uh, uh, at Commonweal. Uh, and, and there are many, many more. So thank you. Uh, I wanted to um, start out by <laughs> Um, saying hello again to Wendy. We just left each other a few minutes ago uh, on another teaching uh, situation, um, Buddhist teaching, what we do on Friday mornings. And um, to add to, to the bio on both of us, um, uh, I have known Wendy since I was four years old. <laughs> Uh, she was uh, is the older sister of uh, my childhood friend Sally, and uh, she was very much a um, a beacon of goodness uh, to uh, young girls growing up uh, in suburbia. Uh, she was the first social justice uh, pioneer I ever knew uh, as a Vista volunteer, and brought consciousness of Appalachia back. Um, from her living there. And I, I think that uh, truly that was my first taste of that. And you continue, Wendy, to be a beacon. Uh, and I'm delighted we get to do this together. So I wanted to ask you about the dedication of the book before I ask you a little bit more. Okay. Uh, the, the book is dedicated to the garden a field far beyond form and emptiness, and to Peter for a lifetime of love and work. And I thought you might just start us out by telling us a little bit about how you and Peter have navigated this path together, because I know it's a, a, a beautiful and a very powerful path. And he's always off camera, so I'd love to just have you tell us a little bit about him in that field far beyond form and emptiness? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh -huh. I, I will really look forward to, to doing that. And, um, but before I do want to also express gratitude for our long friendship and collegial relationship in our practice and uh, knowing each other as um, family, friend, uh, and more than that. So I'm extraordinarily grateful for this um, live stream between us. And, and also very much grateful for the work of Commonweal, which we followed since the very beginning, and for the privilege that Commonweal and Green Gulch Farm Zen Center share of being visitors, guests, uh, respectful beginners, uh, learners on native land, that we find ourselves this morning sitting and practicing in Coast Miwok territory, a long tradition, thousands of years of living tradition and um, practice 
life force. And I'm very much feeling that this morning in the long shadow of Mount Tamalpais. And feeling grateful for the gift of uh, bringing together health, happiness, and um, deep investigation, thoughtful investigation, which is the, really the landmark of common wheel, wheel and wealth and goodness for all beings. So I'm really feeling that. You know, the, the, um, uh, you know I'm, I'm going to stay a little bit with this. Jean, I promise I'll get to your question. Um, but also just to acknowledge where we are in the world right now, in, in this country with 115,000 people diagnosed with COVID-19 yesterday the highest count. I think about a place like Commonweal that works to look at the causes and conditions that give rise to true health and, uh, and dis-ease in these times, how large that question is and how large our call is, and particularly to be together this morning. And we chose this morning. We knew we wanted to have this conversation close to the national election and close to this unsettled and rich time and to dedicate our practice to looking deeply at the issues that animate our life right now together in this country. So I'm extremely grateful to be together with you and with the audience this morning. You know, in, in the Buddhist world, we say, we, as we begin, we set the intention for what we're going to do. And so I, I always thought of the, of the um, dedication of the book as a way to set the intention. So of course, my parents, my stepmother said, well, you're certainly going to dedicate the book to dad, right? And I said, no. What? I said, no, no, no. Maybe to, the, to all fathers in the 10 directions, to the father of the waters, to, to, the, to the great father, you know, to, to some fa fatherliness. But no, the book is dedicated to the garden, to the unknown garden and to the edge of the dragon's gate and a field that is much bigger even than form and emptiness to which we chant every day. So that was clear. It came up so strongly in the very beginning. And then I thought, but that's a little ethereal. I want to also dedicate this to my partner in crime, my hard digging, hardworking husband, Peter Rudnick, and to the work that we've done that we've been privileged to do together 25 years at Zen Center at Green Gulch and now very much in the world and, and connected. So I, I cannot manifest him. As you know, he's furtive. He ran away this morning. He peeks to the corner to see you and he waves, but he never, he never appears. Many doubt that I am actually married, but I am truly, fully, and utterly connected. And we have some extraordinary fights about how to make the best compost. So I love it that the beginning slide for, the, for this presentation is me and the compost pile, because usually it's Peter. So... Yeah, even even celebrating your birthday, he disappeared at the last minute. So he's he's um he disappears, but he's utterly present, and he's very much present in this book and in our life together at Zen Center. Yeah. So I want to tell you that what has been um, put in the chat is that people can see a a blue purple rainbow <laughs> right right there in your room with you. So wow, um, wow. Yes. Um, the, the blue and purple. We we won't say more than that. The spirit world. Um, yeah. yeah. Dancing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I know we're we're going to talk about a lot of things, but because we're going to start with the book uh, again, uh, this wonderful book, Gardening at the Dragon's Gate, with a wonderful subtitle, At Work in the Wild and Cultivated World. 
um, I want to know what's the dragon's gate. Well, the, 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 uh, thank you. You know, the, the um, Zen name of Green Gulch Farm Zen Center is Green Dragon Zen Place. Uh, the dragon, the mythic being, the great dragon, and there's a dragon right behind me at the base of the rainbow, you know, right near Thich Nhat Hanh, who's very close to the dragon's gate right now. So the dragon is, a, some, some say mythic, I know very manifest being, the dragon made of fire and water. At Green Gulch Farm, we say it's called Green Dragon's End Place because it looks, the, the valley, the curvaceous valley looks a little bit like a dragon's body superimposed on the land, dragon's veins. Ancient Chinese people say a garden shows in the dragon's veins, no straight lines, just the, un, the undulating, unctuous, you know, world of the dragon moving. The dragon stirring the ocean and tail in the ocean, head in the sky, bringing together the truth of the celestial truth and maritime and terrestrial truth. So from the very beginning of writing this book, of being invited to write this book by Bantam Books, um, I felt it's, yeah, we're talking about gardening at the Dragon's Gate, the gate between worlds, between fire and water, between known and unknown, between myth and manifestation. So it, it um, from the very beginning, I hoped that that would be the title. And, you know, the very powerful and wonderful editor and friend, Tony Burbank from Bantam Books said, no way. This is, that is too ethereal, too California. We are not going to publish a book called Gardening at the Dragon's Gate. Find something more practical. I said, I can't. If, if you can, please. If you can't, I can't help you. Gardening at the Dragon's Gate is the name of the book. So, Wendy, where are we now? Well, so, you know, I let me just say, Jean, so Tony resisted, 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 and then very close to publication when there was so much trauma in this country around economic uh, falling back and just uh, real, real trauma on every level in the United States. She said, we have a title for the book. I said, really? What is the title? She said, Gardening at the Dragon's Gate. I said, what happened? She said, I didn't see how close we are to the Dragon's Gate. Now I see, and it's the right title. So Gardening at the Dragon's Gate is between, is it gardening at the edge of the known and the unknown world. And I wanted the book, wanted the book, but the book is also very practical. It's not a metaphor. It's not a Zen meditation. It's very much about being at work in the wild and cultivated world. So um, I'm so happy with this title, although it's, and you know, we had a, we had a picture that was a little, that was very beautiful, but Tony said, no, I, we need something fiercer. So she found this squash plant, which I love. And you notice the insect embedded in the heart of a plant. So she found that in the Bantam files. And, and then we're lucky enough to have the book be illustrated by dear Dharma friend, uh, Davis Tassell and his wife, Stephanie Kaza, are absolutely close, forever friends, more than friends, Dharma colleagues. So to have Davis illustrate the book, to be able to check through the text with a Dharma sister like Stephanie, it, this has been a collaborative work in the wild and cultivated world. I'm never going to let you talk unless you make me stop, <laughs> so please. <laughs> I, I, I only want to ask you again. Yeah. 
Where are we now? Yeah. Well, I think more than right. I think more than ever, we are in we are we are in the body of the dragon right now. We are we are in the fire. We are in the catastrophic climate driven chaos of our times. We are in the forces of pandemic, rising racism and uh, and poverty. We are in the fire and in the deep water and we have to respond. So the Dragon's Gate is opening and closing in our opportunity to be alive and to ask the good land, the good earth, to bring forth food out of this matrix right now in this burning time is of utmost importance. This morning in the Heart of Compassion Sangha, uh, beautiful presentations from the pr- practitioners about the importance of real food, not a ghost, and real work and real relationship and real remembering and real story. So this is dragon's work, and it takes a dragon's ferocity to do this work. Dragon's dragon coast on the dragon coast. Now I, that sounds a little grand. You know, the book took a long time to write, Jean. So my husband Peter, tell them how many years it took to write. Thirteen years. Everybody said, just write the book. Stop gardening. Stop talking. Stop studying. Stop. And you know, gratitude to Tony and to Jisha Warner and to all the wonderful people who helped bring this book forward to all the, all the many writers who've also struggled with the same thing. Do I write or do I keep going with my work? So 13 years. In fact, my husband, Peter Rudnick, instead of gardening at the dragon's gate, he calls it dragging at the garden gate. (laughs) It's really, he's wicked. So yes, I dragged along at the garden gate and finally this book came out and it was a book that was invited to be written by Bantam books to accompany the cooking books to accompany the beautiful Greens cookbooks from Deborah Madison, Ed Brown, and Annie Somerville. So it's a, it's a companion uh, volume, I think. Yeah, let's talk about the, the connection between spiritual practice, especially Green Gulch, Tassajara, San Francisco Zen Center, mm-hmm. and um, the, the movement eventually becoming more of a... Um, uh, it's a community-based movement, but it's also spread wide and far. And right. you are part of it in many ways, right. in many places. Right. Well, thank you. I, you know, I, I know uh, Kira made me promise I wouldn't do this, but I am going to hold up this wonderful picture of Amigo Bob Contesano and his wife, Jennifer, laughing and smiling. Their wedding happened at Green Gulch. Amigo is the founder, one of the founders. No one person is ever a founder of the Ecological Farming Association and 40, almost 40 years of committed organic farming on the front lines and making food available. So with Amigo's teaching, and he's been an advisor to Green Gulch for many decades and is still very much in our lives. Um, A huge gratitude to Amigo and Jennifer and the whole network of farmers. But from the beginning, we saw this as our spiritual practice to, to grow food and to share food and to make sure that every being in every way and life would be fed with the same glorious food that was coming out of the ground from organic farmers wherever we were. So that deep commitment, that's a 40 year, 40 year long commitment and fierce one. So um, food and food, family farming has always been linked up. There is as, um, one friend said, no anonymous food. Every single morsel of food has a farmer's face on it. And we've learned not so much from each other, although that's been wonderful and 
and rich, but from the land itself and from the food. So we see we see all of these beings as relatives, and in, we are in relationship and in kinship with food, family, farming, uh, friends. And, and and was it through greens? Was it through well, those kinds of partnerships that you began to reach out? And I, I'm, where I'm going with this is yeah. how did how did you finally become um, much more involved in native food ways and indigenous right. plants? I'm going to love talking about that because uh, it's so important to me. But I do want to say, and you know this well because of the beautiful introduction you gave this morning to the Heart of Compassion Sangha, that the link between food and practice has always been intimate beyond measure. Ed Brown, food is not matter, but the heart of matter, the flesh, the blood of rock and water, earth and sun. And we taste this and we get up and serve, and we make a commitment to be fed and to, and to treat food with the same care and precision that we take care of our own eyes and our own body. And we know that we're refining our life at every moment to be food ourselves for a hungry world. So, and this is not metaphorical. It's not philosophical. It's not Zen. It's nothing other than the absolute blunt truth of everything that is. And so, yes, it's been wonderful to be part of San Francisco Zen Center. We have a huge temple bell that we ring with a, with a cedar trunk, boom, boom. And the inscription on the bell says, farming and greeting guests, the old voice of this bell. That voice is not hindered by the wind. So farming, growing food, feeding guests, and being, bringing people, everyone to the table is part of our, it's a huge part of our practice. And we're not, certainly, this is not, there's no um, patent on this for, from, for Zen folks to be doing it. It's, it's, it's what food is. You know, food is, meant, food is life. We, we have talked about and, and agreed that we wanted to bring forward um, food as medicine and medicine as food, which right. has been so much a part of indigenous life uh, so, um, so unquestionably, um, the way indigenous people uh, relate and have relatives, as you said, all the plants and the trees, and right. uh, that that um, you know, many in dominant culture have become so disconnected, and right. yet your life has really been about connecting, 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 and you're right. you're just continuously doing it. Food is medicine, medicine is food. Yeah, yeah. You know, John, I remember um, in the early, early years of Green Gulch, um, there's an iconic picture of Abbot Steve Stuckey, also one of our teachers, working. Um, originally, we, the land was worked with a team of horses, Snip and Jerry. And I have that picture too, but I'm not going to hold it up because the sun will reflect on it. Um, anyway, but in the early, early years, Warren Weber, Warren, and, excuse me, Warren and Marion Weber, uh, made possible the, uh, to us at Green Gulch the gift of a really good row cultivating horse named Joe. Warren and Marion were ready at Bellinas to pass on from working behind the ample buttocks of this gorgeous big sorrel horse. They were ready to move to machinery at Star Route Farm. And um, so with a great deal of sadness, they called to see if we might be interested in having Joe join us at Green Gulch. And um, 
I remember Peter and I drove up to Bolinas with a big truck and um, we, we laid down some planks and Warren clapped his hands like this and Joe leapt under the boards and got into the truck and we took Joe home and began to cultivate the fields with Joe. And behind that slow moving horse, we could watch the land be opened and revealed. And one of the first things that happened early on was in the cultivation behind the, the walking plow, an arrowhead from Lake County gleamed and glinted in the sunlight, an obsidian arrowhead, and was turned up in front of um, the track or within the track, within the plow track. And I remember Peter stopping the horse and getting, getting down and picking up that arrowhead and realizing we are just fleas on the hide of God here. This land is, has been cultivated for generations, for lifetimes, and continues to be cultivated. So that arrowhead coming up and realizing this, this arrowhead or knife, obsidian knife, has been traded from Lake County for what? For abalone, for shells? We don't know for what exactly, but we do know that we're on old land that's long been cultivated. And then it is our calling as beginners and, uh, you know, uh, very much beginning farmers to pay heed to the original teachers, the land and the people that have worked the land for so many generations. So what a gift. And that, uh, that um, obsidian knife is, is a treasure and a reminder, and it's also been returned to the native community. So um, that was early, right in the very beginning. I bet you didn't know that story. I've never told you that, but that was that shine, the sun shining on that obsidian knife was absolutely important. And then we had wonderful teacher, Harry Kellett Roberts, who trained with Robert Spott in the Yurok tradition, not a native person, but a person who was lucky enough to grow up in at the mouth of the Klamath River in Rekaw, to have a mother who directed him toward native culture. And he was one of our first and early advisors, reminding us always that you're here for the long haul for 500 years, and there's work to be done lifetime after lifetime and keep going. So, and always going back to the first teachings, uh, Walking in Beauty is a book of his, some of his stories um, produced kind of recently. Uh, so Harry, Harry, have, that, have Harry as a teacher, but not only Harry, the land itself and native people coming to show us working, working in the, in the early, early years, uh, you know, right when Great and Rancheria, the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria were incorporated in 2000 and working with figure to make sure to turn back the produce of the land to return it back to the native community, to people who are the first residents and always the initial or the original, original instructions coming from them. And we've done, you know, we can only, it's, we've done a paltry job. No, no patting ourselves on the back. There's much, much, much more to do, but also to remember that we're part of an older story. So much to say and, and to hear from you too about this, how important native foodways are. And the relationship well, with our friends. Well, as you would say, I look forward to talking about that. But, <laughs> but this moment, I want to say, I want to take note of the the beam of light again that's in the <laughs> in the um, square with you, and you talking about the beam of light that fell on the um, obsidian arrowhead. Yeah. My own experience of seeing you at Green Gulch in 1978 mm -hmm. and seeing the beam of light that came to you 
on the top of your head and the gold barrette that you had in your hair and how fascinated I was by that. I was way in the back of the Zendo. I could not see anything. Uh, Baker Roshi gave a talk and most people were at the end of the talk, either leaving the hall or going up closer to talk with him. And I was going up closer to see what was that gold gleaming light up there. <laughs> so it was Andy Johnson, yes. So beams of light are, are leading us often uh, into the mystery. And you, Wendy, have been unafraid to go into the mystery. At least it looks like you've been unafraid well, to yeah. do it a lot of times. These are fearsome times. Well, I'm, I'm curious, though, in terms of what do you think gave you that courage? Who are you as the, the one who can go to the Dragon's Gate and work right there in the center of it? You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Wendy Johnson and John Evans. I think it's, you know, I think, um, I mean, I don't even really think about it, John. I just, it's, it's the calling, you know, to, to be engaged. There's, when you see, um, as Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, in, in his beautiful writing, he says, mindfulness practice must be engaged once they're seeing there has to be acting. Otherwise, what's the point of seeing? So I think growing up in Westport, I saw early on some of the same inequities that we see now, but vividly, and realized, you know, I'm, uh, I just felt a different calling, and not a different calling. I felt a, a certain calling to be engaged and close to the natural world and to learn from the natural world. And, you know, what one of the greatest gifts of, the, of my training in Zen practice has been the connection with the native community, with uh, friends that we share in common, Melissa Nelson and, uh, and the, the cultural conservancy and the work of the cultural conservancy to really look at native food ways and to recognize this is courageous work where there's no question about the kinship of medicine and, um, and food. No question whatsoever. So, of course, in order for people to be healthy, and this is a, at the foundation of Commonweal, too, in order for people to be healthy and strong and alive, they need a good shot of living food. And not only, it's not food food coming in separately, again, going back to Ed, it's not matter, but the heart of matter. So when you eat food that's grown well and shared properly, you go back in time to your original instructions. And it's very clear what to do. And I think many, many people are answering now to those original instructions. Many people, many beings, not only people. Well, yes, I agree. And, and I feel that, you know, since we have been in this world that much has changed in terms of that connectivity between different movements and food has been a great um, uh, uh, community um, connection uh, for so many, we we are learning about it um, all the time that it's local and it's regional and it's national and it's international right. and that it is finally intercultural, right. which is really exciting. Um, but it was not everybody, Wendy, to begin with, who, right. uh, who could make the leap from Zen practice to uh, indigenous relationship uh, <laughs> learning. Um, Lucky and, us, right? And, 
And I, well, uh, yes, but I also, I think that you had, uh, I'll go back to courage again. You were not afraid either to look at different spiritual teachings and teachers, yeah. not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but to, in, in fact, in, uh, you know, enlarge and open yourself to more, to more engagement, as you say. And I just want to ask if you'll say a little bit more about your study with Thich Nhat Hanh. Right. Well, I feel, uh, you know, my study with Thich Nhat Hanh is very much connected to my father. So it's nice that you asked that. Um, when I was a young woman, my father, um, you, and you know, you know, of my father, you never really saw he and mom married, but, um, but you I, know, did. I did. You remember. Did. Yeah. Yes. Not the fights around the kitchen table and, and all the reasons that they were not married for long, but um the, uh, they vied with each other. My father moved to New York. He became a publisher of a press. And during the Vietnam War, he realized, I can't keep publishing books. I've got to do something. So he, he stopped publishing and um, became a full-time draft counselor um, against the war um, and started a vigil in his town of Sharon, Connecticut. He was living in a rural part of Connecticut then and standing every Saturday for two hours in the town square, just standing as a witness for peace. And I would make an effort wherever I was to join him and to just stand with him. And on the, on the living room, on the dining room table in our dining room in his dining room, there was a copy of Lotus in a Sea of Fire by Thich Nhat Hanh. And I remember that book. And my father said that he was reading the book to have to understand how to stand quietly enough in the center of the, of the um, village to stop the war. It made a huge impression on me. And then in 1982, Thich Nhat Hanh visited, along with Joanna Macy and Robert Aiken and other fledgling members of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, they came to Tassajara and visited us at Green Gulch, 1982. And I met Thich Nhat Hanh in person. We thanked him. I told him the story of my father and, and our connection and what my father's decision, and he listened very fully. And, you know, he said to me, can't we have Zen, a Zen center without Zen and without a center? In the Buddha's time, there was practitioners moved anonymously across the land and were courageous in a way that um, can happen when you're not encumbered by responsibility. So can't we have Zen center without Zen and without a center? And can't it be joyful? Suffering is not enough. Uh, real fierce practice is made of practice that isn't necessarily fierce. So wonderful teachings. And, you know, not long after that, John, in, I think it was, I, I don't remember the actual year, but not long after, there was a peace march in New York City. And I was went to march with my father in, in this peace march. And Thich Nhat Hanh was part of that march with a contingency from San Francisco Zen Center. And what happened in that march is he stepped out into the fast-moving, energetic peace march streets of New York City and caused a traffic jam. He turned to the contingency that he was with and said, you moved through my country so quickly during the Vietnam War. To really make peace means to slow down, to feel how you live and who you are. Can you slow down today as we ask for peace in the world 
and not make it a parade. And so they unched slow and they were spread all the way across the avenue. And the A, I remember the AFL-CIO was there blowing whistles, gesturing, get a move on. It's New York after all. No, slow, deep steps pressed into the hot pavement of New York City on that summer morning. And it was clear to me, I have to work with this teacher while, while being at San Francisco Zen Center. This is possible. We're, you know, we're called, this is how it works when a root teacher claims you. You go and you follow. So it, it was a little hard, but, you know, completely possible that Zen practice in many different ways. And I'm so grateful for those early years. It was very clear from the beginning. And, and uh, a lot of what we did was working with gardening and food food and um and and activism so I'm, I'm grateful for that part of my training and thank you for asking and you know in on veterans day um in 2014 Thich Nhat Hanh endured a massive cerebral hemorrhage on on um armistice day actually the day when you lay down your arms massive cerebral hemorrhage and he's um been unable to speak but but present with us and Two years ago, I mean, not quite, but a little while ago, returned to Vietnam, and he is in his home temple now in Hue, to, you know, in these days, very close to um, joining the great majority, to crossing the great divide, uh, not taking much food or water, surrounded by his his um, community in, in his homeland in Vietnam, and thousands and thousands and thousands of beings influenced by that simple, profound teaching. Does it take courage? It just takes being aware, seeing, and then acting according to what you see. Well, I know, I know that we're beautiful know. in calling us to remember Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh in these times. Well, you made me think of him when you talked about being in a demonstration the other day in Oakland yeah. and about being with others who are long timers, um, right. that there were people uh, sitting during the, the demonstration. Do you want to say a little bit more just to tell you us? Know, what this gratitude to the to our extended community, in my our particular lineage, uh, religious so-called religious lineage or practice lineage is, is Zen Buddhism. You and I share this link. And much, much, you know, on a very deep level, who's surprised? I'm not surprised, given the suffering you grew up with. Uh, and now we're in the world, and me, and what I saw too as a child, what we saw in our wealthy suburb, of white privilege. Mm -hmm. So now here we are in the world and uh, at work in the wild and cultivated world. And part of that is, you know, beginning of this whole election time, doing participating with Upaya Zen Center and the election series, listening to call to peace in action, to see the work of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, the work of Sue Moon and friends, um, the extent their extended election work, the work of the, you know, Barbara Gates, the dear friends participating and holding the line, really being conscious. And so, of course, when there was a call to come and stand on behalf of every vote being counted, just joyful call in this country right now to have every vote be counted. So that's why we gathered in Oakland, socially distant, well-masked, gloved, sitting quietly on very wet lawn there in the, in the park. Uh, right by 12th Street in the heart of Oakland with hundreds and hundreds of other people standing and calling for just slowing down the inquiry, counting the votes. And it was a, a practice day, a day of dance, a day of food, a day of 
sadness a day of um, prayer. And it was wonderful to be there. More engagement, more engagement. Yeah, so it is. I mean, can be frenetic. You know, I, um, our dear friend, um, Ty Cashman, who's part of the Heart of Compassion Sangha, years ago, walking through Green Gulch, he said, it's a valley of ancestors. Are we, are we, what are we doing here? Is this, is engaged, are we engaged in the world or are we kind of hiding from the world? What's the, what's the actual um, pathway here? And of course, is this a safe haven from the world or is it a field of action? That's how he said it much more beautifully. Is it, is Zen practice a field of action or a safe haven from the world? And of course it's both a safe haven so that you can express your activism. It's a safe haven where you can grow food. And then the activism is to share the food with a hungry world and be guided by the food in the work that we're doing. So that, that junction between safe haven and field of action is something, you know, are, are you a pioneer or a guardian? Are you a pioneer in your work or do you guard the temple and take it? You do both. Every pioneer has to be guarded a little bit and every guardian has a bit of pioneer spirit in order to be a guardian. So that without getting caught by the binary polarization of these questions, practice occurs. So when I'm you find this beautiful quote from the 13th century, when you find your place where you are, practice occurs from Dogen Zenji, 13th century, Shobo Genzo. When you find your place where you are, practice occurs. Are we seeing a cat go across here? Um, <laughs> there's a bad cat. There's a bad cat that, that, that <laughs> there's a bad cat that keeps us on our toes. We can he just like a and he's hungry. Like a tail or something that, yeah. that <laughs> flutters by. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's lots, so lots of action here. So I want to ask because I'm I'm um I'm trying to um bring forward this phrase you just used about being guided by the food and guardianed by the food. Right. Um, I'm wanting to ask you, um, what are your special foods, the ones that inspire you? Right. Your plants, which ones? Uh, I know it's hard, Wendy. You're going to yeah. tell me you can't narrow it well, down. Maybe a uh, couple. Uh, look what's behind the great sacred white corn of the Keepers of the Western Door, the gift of O'Neill. This was a, this braid was a gift. And I know we'll talk about the gift of uh, this gift during pandemic of being able to share food in conjunction with San Francisco Zen Center. So this this beautiful braid of corn, true corn, real corn uh, from the Three Sisters, um, corn beans and squash. And I think because of Sally and Debbie, I'm and I'm a three, you know, a third sister, the eldest. So maybe I'm squash. And Sally is elegant corn and Debbie's got a handful of beans. I don't have beans on my hand, but you know, all these crops are so important and, and there, and there are many, you know, I certainly think of the apple, this beautiful bellflower apple in my hands, but you know, to, when we were talking this morning and hold, this, it up, hold it up, let us see it. Yeah. So, I, you know, I here's the bellflower apple from volunteer Canyon. Then there's a whole story around this. Woo. Can you okay. see Yes, now we can see. Yeah, a bellflower apple. But I, you know, this morning it it occurred to me. Look to at that. Talk about the pomegranate. Mm -hmm. Because right now, you know, going to visit Amigo and Jen the other day, um, up in Grass Valley and uh, San, San Juan Ridge, we uh, we stopped 
and found that there was a beautiful pomegranate tree and the fruit was split open. And I think of the pomegranate, you know, in Hebrew, this fruit is called rimon. It's the same word, John, for hand grenade. Because a grenade looks like a pomegranate. So this is the fruit of paradise and, and probably, you know, was the apple really the fruit of paradise or was it a pomegranate? More likely in the Middle East, the fruit of paradise was a pomegranate. So when I saw that split open pomegranate and this morning listening to the teachings from Sangha members, I remembered November a number of years ago, uh, visiting a friend, a Dharma sister in Sacramento and she was grieving. Her father had just died. And outside of her house, the pomegranate tree was split open. And um, pomegranate seeds were on the ground. And she told me a story of that tree being her father's real touchstone. He loved the tree. And when he was ill, uh, there came a knock on her door one day. And there were women from Persia standing on the step of her doorway. And they said, we have we're here from Persia. Our uh, we're we're sisters and uh, aunties, and our beloved uh, young son, who's nine years old, is in the children's hospital not far from here. And we, before we go to visit him, we walk in the neighborhood and we notice you have a pomegranate tree, and wonder if we might collect some fruit. Um, mm-hmm. And so the father was very enthusiastic. And um, so the women collected in their scarves and bags all the fruit that was on the ground. And um, they stayed at that children's center for a good long time. And when, right before uh, my friend's father died, right before another knock at the door, and she opened the door and there was a jar of pomegranate jam on on the step. And when I was with her, she and I had the last taste of that fruit, you know, the fruit of, this is the fruit you eat a seed of pomegranate because you're willing to go down into hell with all beings and live in the underworld in Hades town. You're willing to live underneath the world when you taste this fruit and you're willing to see the unity, the, the terrible uh, balance between fruit and war. You're willing to see and to taste that truth. So I think maybe this morning it's the pomegranate that's coming up. Where if I wish we could split it open together and taste and taste the seeds, taste the truth, taste the willingness to be under the ground. Now we're going, this is the season when we go underground. Uh, this is the dark time of the year when the veil between worlds is thin, thin, thin. We taste the fruit of suffering and delight and go under the ground and then come up new in the spring. The pomegranate is a great teacher. And it's splitting open its um, gorgeous receptacle now to drop out um, seeds of seeds of truth, seeds of paradise. So the paradise apple, and you know, in a way, the um, the signature um, pinched or crimped or pleated um, bottom uh, of the of the apple and the pomegranate are united. They have a kind of pucker and and um so this is of course where the tree hangs where the fruit hangs from the tree and this is the bottom so they share some kind of identity obviously they're not in the same family i'm not going to go that far but um so this is the fruit i'm thinking of today and uh, and wishing that we could taste it together as you were talking about your friend and her father having this affinity for the tree yeah 
love for the tree. And you talked about the seeds on the ground. I was thinking about, you know, the tears of the tree, knowing that the father was dying and how that, that closeness with plants, that closeness with uh, the animated uh, world of um, flowers and, and trees and um, shrubbery and, and weeds and all of it that we walk into every day, as yeah. you were saying, is ours to recognize as relative. Right. And not to see it in a dualistic or binary. Yeah, and this, I think when we were thinking about this session and how we would speak together, I mean, right right away, what comes up is dharma and ecology. And dharma, dur, the Sanskrit root of dharma, dur, to uphold and sustain, dur, is also the root for tree and truth and farm. Mm-hmm. So a tree upholds, sustains, and speaks truth to power. And dur, dharma does the same. So dharma and ecology and farming and growing and practice are very much linked and we taste the truth. You know, I, I, um, I thought, and you'd mentioned this, and I, and, you know, again, from this morning's teaching, I had all these plants. See, gardening at the Dragon's Gate's got all these nice little markers on it. But no, just like the practitioners <laughs> this morning, I thought of something new. So let's get down and dirty. Let me read. Just It's only two paragraphs. About um, you can about, read as much as you want. Your yeah. your fans are here. We're we're all ears. So I remember when Tony Burbank said, you know, uh, she said we 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 need to have a chapter in the book on pests. And I said, I don't believe in pests. I don't believe in. I believe in integrating. And I'm a pest. I'm a colonizer. I'm a not a native person. I'm a trouble. I've got ideas. Kale. I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, cl- clever enough to walk in the, in the hillsides and winnow the seeds of, of the ancient grasses and, and uh, forbs. No. So to have a pest, to have a chapter on pests, she said, just go for it. And it came in at 100 pages. And she said, good, 100 handwritten pages. Good Lord. And one of the pests I included was children, because children can be pestiferous in gardens. So when children are permitted to garden, not only might they develop, when they're permitted to really garden, well, let me, let me start back a bit. When I was learning to garden, I worked with a Zen student who was a great gardener and a new mother, Daya Chadwick. Um, this is uh, Kelly, uh, Daya, Daya, Chad, Daya Goldsmith, Goldstein. Mm. Daya and uh, David Chadwick were married, and their child is Kelly. Daya's son, Kelly, was about 15 months old, a wiry firecracker imp, shooting out random live sparks wherever he went. When he was in the garden at Tassajara, Kelly often pulled his clothes off and scoot crawled naked around the beds. Once we found him with a juvenile garden snake hanging out of both corners of his mouth. He was clamped down on the snake. Uh, this is true. Daya nearly collapsed from maternal shock. The baby saw her surprise, opened his mouth to laugh, clapped his hands, and the snake slithered away. No barrier or control ever stops a determined child. So just surrender. 
With Kelly, I confess that I laid mounds of newly cut stinging nettles around my pet prized bed of carrots that he loved to pull up and discard, but he tanked right through the nettles and continued until he reached and mangled every single new carrot. When children are permitted to garden, not only might they develop a love and sensitivity for the life of the green world, they may also find a stomach for grief and change. A dual force at work in every dynamic garden. I've learned not to protect young people from duality when they are in the garden and not to interpret sorrow and death for them when they come upon it in a garden. Now, I learned this lesson. I learned it firsthand. When I was a young woman, first working in the Zen Center Gardens at Green Gulch Farm, and a young doe died right next to me. She'd gotten into the field in the early morning at the end of the growing season when the hills were dry and barren of food, a time very much like these times when so many of us are encountering black-tailed deer. We spotted her during communal work, trotting the periphery of the deer fence, tailed by her minuscule fawn, a little flea of a deer wanting to embed itself in her mother's hide. In our excitement in finding them in the field, we chased the deer, shouting, gesturing, trying to sweep mother and fawn along the edge of the fence line, out the open gate to the coastal hills beyond the garden, trying to save mother and fawn, but in our own Zen way. Not very mindful. We lost ourselves in the process, and we forgot the true nature of deer, their essential wildness. Deer cannot be chased or herded. When they are cornered, they explode in panic like shattered quicksilver. We watched helplessly as the doe panicked, threw herself against the deer fence, and broke her neck. Her little fawn bounded away in the rising light. Katagiri Roshi was working with us that morning. He put down his hoe, tied back his robe sleeves, untied his robe sleeves, which he always tied behind his back when he was hoeing. And we sat together near the foam-flecked deer. Should I put her out of her misery? Asked Steve Stuckey, who had grown up on a farm in Kansas and understood such matters. Just sit with her, Katagiri Roshi said. He told us quietly, and so we did. The doe died quickly with a black gurgle of blood in her long, elegant throat. We carried her to the compost pile and buried her in the center of the heap, covered her with mounds of manure-rich bedding straw. Her bones were picked clean and absorbed into the pile in less than three months. Only her delicate skull remained. Staring out hollow-eyed from the pile when we turned the compost heap early next spring and we never found her fawn. I wish, dear friends, that there were some way to garden without harming and taking life. I wish it. But I do not believe that there is. Gardener and pest are intertwined made of each other. Practicing with this truth may soften the edge between us. So So beautiful, Wendy. Thank you. Thank you for spending 13 years uh, bringing that. (laughs) Pulling pulling a big fat book through a little tiny needle. Uh, A mountain of needles. And thank you, I think, for... um, 
also the kind of um, encouragement for all of us to um, to know that we will encounter yeah. uh, what is difficult and not to turn away. Right. Um, to be... Um, mm, to be with each other when possible, also um, helping each other not to turn away, which is what you have done for so long. Um, and before we open it up to questions here, I yeah. want to yeah. ask you one, one last question because you had touched on it about the pandemic yeah. and, um, and the opportunity and the uh, sorrow both. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I think, you know, Jean, that back in, on the summer solstice uh, at Upaya Zen Center, um, Roshi Joan and the team at, at Upaya pulled together a panel of about 12 women and, and asked us to comment on. Um, Fabulous. Yes. And, to, to, and this is available, uh, dear friends, dear, dear um, Sangha that's listening, dear community that's listening this morning at the, in the new school and um in the in the wide embrace of Commonweal, that this teaching is available through Upaya Zen Center, um, right around the summer solstice. Awake and aware, uh, women speaking about pandemic, racism, uh, the rising uh, truth of climate chaos and uh, and poverty. How are they coming together, and what are we seeing in our times? And um, I think each one each one of us is one and unique, and we're we're called to serve in different ways. So, you know, for Peter and for me, it was clear during this time, we're looking at massive hunger, uncharted hunger, or lack of accessibility to food and to the medicine that is good food. So, um, and, you know, of course, in conjunction with the pandemic, when things are closed down, it's harder for people to access good food and and beautifully you know every spring in in march at zen center at green gulch um the growing season begins with a chanting ceremony for the benefit of all beings and sowing seeds mindfully and carefully and made this season open and may we feed a hungry world all season long and that's very much the intentional vow you know the the opening vow at san francisco zen center um this year it wasn't possible because of the quarantining and because of the pandemic for green gulch students to go out from Green Gulch. And yet there was this beautiful food, the fields in rambunctious array by May, full on. And, and we're not able to go to market and the mark, public markets aren't even open. They're closed, they're open. You know, it's hard to know, but hunger remains. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Wendy Johnson and John Evans. Uh, you know, hungry, hungry mother, hungry world. One in five people in Berkeley lack access to good food in Berkeley. Berkeley Food Network is feeding thousands of people now that are, do not have access to food. And we know this. Those of us who are you know, have our finger on this pulse, we know this. So Green Gulch is closed. Peter and I live next door. We penetrate the baffle, of course, suggesting to, to the beautiful team there, hey, you've grown the food. You figure out how to box it up and we'll take it to people in the world who will know how to distribute it. And this was key. We're not going to be the saviors, Peter and Wendy, that are distributing food. Oh, here you are, poor hungry people, take this food. But if we know people who live in the communities, in the wider community, those people can distribute the food without any question. So, of course, 
we were very fortunate. And we had this in triple treasure, actually. You know, former Zen students, three incredible former apprentices out in the world, one working in um, Alamany uh, Community Farm, one working, two working at a, a small school garden. They were just, they took seedlings and, you know, Peter and I brought them out. We met, we met, um, we met these three former apprentices, they're, you know, leaders, Sarah Manal and Jack, and they took 20, we distributed 25,000 seedlings that were planted in school gardens and community gardens, and they knew where to go. They took flats after flats, and they knew they had to bring the flats back, or they'd get, you know, they're trained at Gringo, so you have to bring the flats back, clean and empty. So we had this process happening from May until yesterday. Actually, yesterday was the last distribution to the Fellowship Church in Marin City, where there was, you know, we've delivered huge amounts of food, and then primary donation to the Native community. And, 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 you know, to our friends who are also growing this beautiful corn and classic squashes and handfuls of beans, plenty of food. And yet everyone wants a little kale and chard to make life more green. So this is the dry world. The dry mind is best, but a green is nice too. tomatoes from the farm. So we collaborated in this incredible situation. Let me just because I know how much you know this community. Hold on, this is final work. Uh, where is it? I'm trying to find we all my right. Never mind. We, we did, now here we go. I just want you to know, where, where did the food go? Just listen to this one. I wrote about it and it'll be available for everyone to read next week on Tricycle Magazine. Um, one of our closest colleagues was the Cultural Conservancy, beloved place-based, indigenous-led, intertribal organization Peter and I have been working with for almost a decade. Every week from May through September, I met Maya Harjo's Kepaw, Shawnee, Muskogee Creek, and Seminole, young Native Food Waste Director. She has a green truck we transferred from my overpacked little blue fit into her farm truck, 10 to 12 to 15 boxes. Last week, it was seven, nine boxes. Uh, and then she packaged it at the Cultural Conservancy. Maya and other young Native staff tend traditional harvest fields of Seneca flint corn, Chimayo chili peppers, Lakota squash, and bear paw beans. These medicine crops are supplemented with cool coastal relatives from Green Gulch, dinosaur kale, um, fingerling potatoes, and huge batches of savoy, spinach, and red um, mustard every week. Native CSA boxes filled with this produce are distributed to feed families through California Native Indian Museum, American Indian Children's Resource Center in Oakland, all organizations you know, Sean, and the Segurate Land Trust, an urban indigenous women-led organization honoring sacred sites and ancestral burial grounds throughout traditional Native American lands of California East Bay region. What a harvest! Thousands and thousands of pounds of food, and it's going on. So we found a way to make some kind of magic out of the calamity of these times. And Green Gulch, the generosity of the Zen Center, the, the generosity of the fields and the, and the crops themselves, speaking in their own tongues, the truth of nourishment and medicine. Far um, beyond form and emptiness. Form and emptiness, far beyond. <laughs> anyway, Wendy, we, we must other people. Must Thank you for listening. We must let others ask you questions. Okay, let's go. Let's do it. I want to ask you then about the four elements, the yeah. four great elements. Um, 
t- tell us what that is and, and um, how. Well, this, it's great you're asking that, John, because, um, you know, in a chant that we chant every day at the Zen Center, the Sandokai um, from Seiki Tokizen, the the, there's a, a, a line that always called to me where um, the chant says, um, the four great elements return to their own nature. Fire heats, water wets, earth is solid, uh, air is alive. So, and I always ask myself, what does it mean for the four great elements, earth, air, water, fire, and space? Uh, what does it mean for them to return to their own elements? And doesn't, isn't that what organic gardening is all about? True, the nature, the, the deep nature. So soil itself is made of, uh, you pick up a handful of soil in one teaspoonful of soil, there are more microorganisms than there are human beings on planet Earth. So it's teeming with life. And actually with Amigo, with our friend Amigo, I said, we got to figure out some way to prove this. He said, just get a good teaspoonful of soil and drop a dropper full of peroxide on it and show people it's frothing and teeming with bacterial life. So sure enough, we, we would take that out to children, show them a teaspoonful of good earth with a little peroxide on it, <laughs> erupts with um, a fire of intentionality. So if the four great elements, when the four great elements return to their own nature, then earth includes air, it includes airspace, it includes water, it includes um, mineral, the mineral truth, and it certainly includes um, the, the, the micro risal or the microbacterial world all in one in one and of course that's true with water including all the elements fire you know and and air well it's also true of, of us uh, yeah. teaming with microbacterial there we go we're beginning to own as we begin to learn about gut health and right. all sorts of exactly which we are sharing bacteria with all the beings we live with so and I thought, a, okay, yeah. so dharma, dharma and ecology practice is messy. It's nonlinear. It's, um, you know, it's very fruitful. It's emergent. It's networked. And all of that is true when you really look at the elements that make a good garden. So I'm going to ask you some of the questions in the chat. Good, I'm ready. One, one is a um, <clears throat> question about, do you still teach? And do you practice the elm dance? And, well, and uh, the next question is about recommending a conscious beloved Zanga in the Bay Area that's oh Zooming God. regularly for this person to join. Deborah is her name. Yeah. Uh, she's a longtime Zen practitioner. Right. Well, I, I certainly, I mean, I don't think of myself as a teacher. I learn and I practice. I'm a lateral roots person. So I practice in conjunction. I, I work with you every Friday morning. Right now on Zoom, the Heart of Compassion Sangha, open Sangha, anyone is willing and anyone who wants to be with us from 8 o'clock in the morning until 9.30 every Friday. There are lots of options. I do. I'm active in my presence at Upaya Zen Center. Uh, We'll be leading a January practice period this winter. I hope to be able to be there in person. I'm not sure if I'll be able to be. Depends very much on the pandemic and how it unfolds. But um, I'm... uh, quite involved still with the apprentices at Green Gulch. So yes, I have an active life and I have an active Dharma um, receptivity to the plant kingdom. So I, I, uh, I, we have a small nursery at home. So there's lots of ways to be involved and to be, to be, um, to be active. And um, 
you know, we would love to have you join us, right? On, right. on Friday morning. I'm, put, I'm putting in the chat yes. the, the Zoom link and um, the, uh, the invitation, as Wendy said, it's open to anyone who right. would like to come. Yeah. Also, just to ask someone saying, um, can you say more about uh, the importance of um, decomposing our egos during right. these times of reckoning right. and turning? Well, I think you're, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, the computer is balanced on a wild love for the world. To, I, whenever I do a teaching that really matters or, or whenever I'm involved in a dialogue that really matters, I put the the computer on top of a wild love for the world, which is, as you know, Sean, say something about a wild love for the world, because we've just finished a two months long um, training and teaching with this beautiful book edited by um, Stephanie Caza and uh, Joanna Macy's teachings and their effect in the world. So about 50 different writers writing about that. And I wrote about decomposing the ego. So maybe say more about that book, John, so they can, so everybody can hear a different voice. That book is a very, uh, again, um, using Wendy's you know, word about lateral teaching book, um, where uh, all kinds of teachers from very different traditions and different experiences with Joanna Macy are expressing their gratitude. It's through um, Stephanie Kaza's ama- amazing editorial um, uh, a genius, really, that the that the book came together. Uh, Stephanie Kazu, who many of you know, is also a great um, Dharma teacher. Uh, and I didn't know about Dharma having its root in the word tree, yeah. but Stephanie is uh, a Dharma tree um, uh, Zen master. And she has many books, uh, Green Buddhism being one of them, uh, where she talks uh, also about her lifelong study of ecology and Zen practice, of spiritual practice. And for all of us, you know, spiritual practice is something that uh, is uh, a great, um, uh, I want to say energy, a a great um, energizer uh, in this time, especially uh, this time of pandemic. To be able to have books like these, um, Wendy's book, Stephanie's books, and also uh, A Wild Love for the World by Joanna Macy. What we're seeing now is a kind of um, uh, spirit, uh, uh, embodied spirit in the world, um, everyday living, being deeply uh, uh, influenced and guided. It doesn't have to be in a rarefied cathedral setting. It is right in our own home cathedrals. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that, um, you know, and now, and this is Joanna Macy celebrated her 91st birthday on May 2nd of this year um, in the heart, in the, you know, right in the muscle of the pandemic. And because of the pandemic, a wild love for the world has some real resonance, I think. And right now they're working on, Stephanie and Joanna working on a um, 30th anniversary edition of uh, World is Lover, World is Self. Anyway, the call for uh, to talk about decomposing ego, it's not a grandiose to- term. It's This comes from a teaching that I received from Joanna many years ago. She was talking about the Lama dances in her community of Tashijang, where she practiced in, uh, in India with Tibetan teachers. And three-day Lama dances included a dance to dismember or to dismember the ego. And the ego was presented in a little, uh, as a little um, creation in an open... Um, 
glass box. The ego was there and there were dances and all kinds of um, ceremonies happening around the ego to encourage the ego to break apart and be recombined with everything that is. So a full celebration of dancing. And um, when we adapted, when Joanna adapted this teaching as she's done in many different ways, but in my, in my case of working with her, we made little clay figurines of egos and um, let them bake in the sun a little bit after a full day of practice and then smashed these ego figurines apart at the end of the day. And, um, and at the end in the night, after everybody'd gone home, I took the dust, the clay dust down to the compost pile and put it on the heap and, and prayed that we could all figure out a way to drop our separate, self-important, um, autonomous selves a little bit and enter back into the, into the great uh, microbial matrix of all that is. So that's, um, I mean, and what's great about this is this is playing with the Dharma, you know, being dead serious and playing for, uh, for the highest stakes. So you recognize your separateness, you see it in a glass box, you try to scare yourself into a wider notion of what it is to be human or to be in kinship with all that is. And eventually it's possible, especially if you can include play, dance, music, and, um, and deep adaptation of traditional practices. So um, you can read, do read the chapter, um, both in Joanna's writing and then in this book of tribute from so many of us, a wild love for the world. And John will put it into the chat so you can see how to ask. I'm also going to try and keep up with these questions. There's a wonderful question from Liza uh, that, that also Jane Flint has hopped on and and, uh, said she'd like to know about it too. How do you help the American fixation on personal fitness and diet? Um, expended to serving the health and food of our whole biosphere. Oh, <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. You know, um, that's such a deep question. I mean, could we get down a little bit closer to origin? I mean, there was a beautiful teaching this morning, wasn't there, about just going out to the garden and getting a handful of kale, massaging it with real olive oil, just massaging it, letting feel the kinship with this extraordinary, crimpled, um, amazing power food, the kale, and holding it in your hands and, and, and making a whole meal out of that sensual pleasure and satisfaction, not too much. I mean, part of we're either we're stuffed or starved. As we know, as, as Raj Patel writes, we're stuffed or starved. And our obsession with being fit, thin, whatever else, and, and uh, you know, eating the perfect food and just enough of it, is good, but also just to remember and to be grateful for the gift of real food that comes out of the land. So this morning when um, when when we were listening to, um, to that recipe and really hearing Laura talk about the kale salad and then squeezing a lemon, and she was very quick to say it was a commercial lemon, our lemons aren't quite ready, but squeezing the lemon all around and then adding whatever she had in the garden, a little, you know, gifts, and then having a feast and being outdoors and eating, just finding basic satisfaction in slowing down and really tasting the truth of the sorrow of these times and also the real flavor of what it means to be alive now. So we're getting near the end, and there are a couple of questions that are persisting. Okay. Um, 
there's one that I think is really important for everyone because not everybody lives in uh, a place where we can have a big garden. Right, right. Question from uh, Claire. Yes. Uh, uh, Claire, who um, is saying, for those of us with limited living space, this is not the Claire you and I know. Yeah. Claire says, with limited living space and little access to gardening, what are right. some additional ways you can suggest to intertwine spirituality and food? Yeah, beautiful question. Beautiful, beautiful, important core question. Um, I mean, I think this morning that was a topic in our in our uh, teaching this morning, and when Eleanor reminded us that we can support other growers, we can support you know to to be nourished with just to choose a farm that you really want to support. Choose a farm like. Um, Moraga Gardens Farms was talked about this morning or um, Tabletop Farm or any farm that you know about that where you where the food calls to you and you're responding to the food. Choose that farm and support it and be, you know, just and also you can visit when you have a good relationship with a farm. You can certainly visit and be part of the farm. Help them if you want that kind of thing or just taking the time to really notice and study where does this food come from, who grew it. And to imagine the, the you know food with the farmer's face on it, in the in the CSA movement, the community supported agriculture movement in Japan, kekkai movement means food with a farmer's face on it, and 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 farmers with the food's face on on the farmers, you know, so you know whatever you taste has been grown hopefully in good consciousness by some being and by good soil, and then you take in the nourishment of that relationship when you eat Mm -hmm. and gratitude to those who live in the city because you are the beings of the future, knowing how to live quietly and deeply in close space um, with, with a very low tread on the, um, on the resources of the world. So gratitude to you. And may we, may those of us who have the privilege of growing food nourish you again and again, may we be in complete conjunction and connectedness. Is there any place Wendy, right now, where people can get their hands in the dirt, people who, uh, you know, Green Gulch is closed right now. But are yeah, there, yeah, you know. Uh, well, sure. I mean, I think we could we could hear from from everybody in the chat. But there, there is, there is, you know, even if it's just maybe not your hand, maybe not a full extensive farm, but even just if you're walking in a park, you can take the time to settle down on the ground, put your hands on the ground, and feel the pulse of life in the soil right right where you are wherever you are you're i mean again the four great elements are returning to their own nature we're made of of land and water and air and a fire the fire of metabolism so it, you know just walking outside near a park or even a just a teaspoonful of soil remembering that even in a teaspoonful of soil there are enough microbes there are more microbes than there are human beings on planet earth so gratitude for the elemental truth of all that is and not turning away from it and and also recognizing i think i'm not saying you have to only connect with fertile soil recognize damaged soil recognize its nature hear its song hear its call hear its remembering hear its plea don't you know so if you're if you're living on soil that has been um 
tampered with. And, you know, so on Roshi used to say, there's no such thing as polluted water. Water can never be polluted. You can add pollutants to water, but the true nature of water cannot be polluted. So I think, you know, don't, don't think that you have to only have pure, iconic, organic soil. Any speck of earth brings forth communion and connection. Um, I'm going to just ask because um, you'll chuckle when I do. Steve, yeah. Costa, Steve Costa wants to know, what's the title of your next book? <laughs> you know, he knows very well that the title will be Elemental Nature or Elemental Truth or Returning to Origin. You know, so the, I want to grapple with elements, with these elements, with water, air, fire and earth and how they interact together. So, yeah, I don't know more than that, but I promise you I'm working on it, Steve promise it's going to come it will come forth and thanks for all your support and help yeah everyone steve, steve and others in the sangha have been of wonderful help and also yeah. in the whole region of wonderful yeah yeah bringing forward so many beautiful elemental dharma elemental um yeah um, lots lots of possibilities but i know the word element is in it what do you want to say in, in closing wendy um, I guess I just, you know, I'm beginning with gratitude and really closing um, with gratitude and dedicating our time together this morning to, um, to creating and nourishing a medicine and uh, good food together as one and sharing it with the hungry world and praying that at some point in whatever way it's possible that all beings can come to the table together and be fed. And until then, May the merit of this teaching this morning uh, reach out and nourish you in your life and practice and in your work uh, in the wild and cultivated world. That's my deep prayer and hope. Yeah. Thank you, John, for your place and for everyone who's participated and taken the time to be together this morning. And thank you, Commonweal, for bringing together medicine and food and innovation. Yes, thank you to Commonweal for all the healing. Um, going on there and and through the different uh, alliances and programs uh, relationships uh, a beloved community that's intertwined with many beloved communities we're really lucky to be here and Kara you're our our um, angel um, uh, hovering over to say uh, goodbye <laughs> well ladies uh, just an amazing and really nourishing conversation i felt very nourished so thank you i can't wait until it's safe to visit green gulch again yeah um yeah yeah so thank you for your presence and what you brought to the conversation uh i'm thinking about pomegranate and i'm celebrating what it brings to us today and thinking about all the tips that you gave us for really making the connection between food and nourishment and spirit so uh we'll Again, we'll have the recordings produced from this conversation available in about a week or two. And we hope to have you at another event with us soon. John Evans and Wendy Johnson, thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Wendy Johnson and John Evans. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani.
Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.